You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Support for this episode of the Comedian's Comedian podcast comes from Gordon Gordon, and the new book is That All You People Think About, which is a very funny new book, uh, a collection of silly, stupid, hilarious, and occasionally rude haiku. Uh, In this collection, you will find a haiku for every moment of modern life, all rendered in precisely 17 syllables, and you can win your own copy of this perfect stocking filler with a little Comedian's Comedian podcast competition. I'm going to give you the first line of a 575 haiku, that's the number of syllables in each line, uh, for you to complete and send it to info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line Gordon Gordon. So your first line is Father Christmas Side. Father Christmas Side. So we need two more lines with seven and then five syllables. And you can win a copy of this book, Is That All You People Think About? Currently available online from Amazon and in Waterstones, WH Smith and Foils. You can also follow Gordon Gordon on Twitter and Instagram at at Gordon Haiku. Do we say that? Do we say at at... Like, if you can follow them at and then the thing. Do you say you can follow them at, at and then the thing? Who knows? On with the show. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. So welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and today I'm speaking to Dane Baptiste, who has been making huge waves uh, in his relatively short comedy career. He's had all sorts of exciting things happen. He's had his own sitcom, Sunny D, uh, on the BBC. He has also produced some incredible hours of comedy, one of which, G-O-D, which stands for Gold Oil Drugs, he is touring shortly. So look out for Dane Baptiste on tour if you like what you hear here, which I'm sure you will. Dane is, uh, I don't know if polymath is the right word, I think at one point I tell him I feel like I'm talking to Tony Stark, which really sets my level for <laughs> what I understand to, uh, to to represent intelligence. Tony Stark, for those of you that don't know, is that bloke in the Iron Man costume. But honestly, to talk to Dane is to engage with an extremely exciting mind. And uh, he's got a lot to say. We're going to get straight into it. I'm going to talk to you in the middle a little bit about Comedia Bath's community ownership campaign, which is a uh, a thing I'm uh, very happy to help those people out with uh, because it's a fabulous venue in the southwest and I think it should be supported. So I'll chat to you about that and a couple of other things in the middle and then at the end of this episode in the postamble I will tell you all about the Secret Santa Christmas debacle. So uh, for now, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with the fantastic and very vigorous Dane Baptiste. Where are you in the uh, the life cycle of your shows at the moment? You're about to go on tour. Uh, yes, I'm about to go on tour in the new year uh, on a national and international tour. Oh, where's the international bit? Uh, so the international tour is basically me working in some uh, tour dates for appearances at Melbourne, uh, Sydney, gotcha. uh, Estonia, Finland, uh, Johannesburg via the uh, International Comedy Festival and hopefully finishing in uh, Montreal. Oh, just amazing. For yeah, just yeah. for laughs. Yeah. Okay. You say hopefully, that's not... Is that announced um, or... It's not, it's, not, or? it's not announced, but okay. that's the intention. And uh, I'm also a very uh, cautious optimist, so anything could happen. So it's just, it's just far, enough, far away enough for me to be like, 
Yeah, yeah. okay. Because I'm the kind of person, when I was like 12, I was like, what are you going to do when you're 18? It's a long way away. <laughs> Anything could happen. So, and is, that, is Montreal a big deal for you? For me, yeah. It's, it's the, the beginning of hoping to make inroads in North America and then by that proxy, the United States. Yes. So, yeah, which is the kind of, the, for me, is the holy grail because I was kind of weaned on US comics. So it's, I guess, performing at that level. Um, but then but then after being in Montreal last year, then or oh, this year, earlier this year, is it, uh, yeah, it's been able to go back and, and see if I can kind of get, pull off a solo show there. Yes. Um, because it's a, it seems to be quite a yeah, stand-up focused festival, as opposed to a fringe festival, so hence the Just for Laughs. And um, yeah, I've had, I, I would love the idea of performing again at another quasi-international festival, but especially one which has maybe an emphasis on North American comedians to see uh-huh. how my stuff flies. So, yeah. So when you say you were you were kind of brought up on American comedy, um, what what is it about, what kind of American comedy are we talking? Uh, just, just, I guess, the stand-up, really. But my, I guess my first experience would be uh, sitcoms so I and sketch comedy. So when I was very young, we had a cable box and we had a chipped one. So I get a lot of US channels. And also, I have dual citizenship. So uh, I would spend some years, I'd spend the summer in, up north, and then some years I'd spend the summer or a few months in the States. So for like 1990 to 92, 94, 96, 98, 2000, 2002 is when I'd spend like a few months in the States. Ah. And uh, then my parents uh, are residents, so then I became a resident in the last three years, a permanent resident of the States. Um so you spent a lot of time there and I have family over there as well. And so you get the influences and for a long time prior to like the uh, internet, Americans were quite headed of the curve for pop culture and stuff. So my cousins always give me advance warning of like the next trend that okay. I'd be making its way across the Atlantic. So I'd always do the research, trying to do that ahead of time. Um, but then, yeah. How, how do you mean like trends as in what? I mean, it'd be like music or like the next big... Okay. musician or the next big film coming out or the next big program and stuff so they'd always try and keep me ahead and I'd always try and stay ahead of the curve and be aware of new pop culture trends and stay ahead of them and uh, and in the, yeah, in the meantime while I was in the States just I was just fascinated by the television over there and I guess it was yeah just probably which is now an issue now but I maybe didn't realise uh, the extent to which it would be an issue would be like I guess the diversity that I've seen in American sitcoms and that being offered so for me, like America, kind of gave me like Martin Lawrence and films like House Party, where which were like kind of having comedic talent all in the same kind of film and having like Kid and Play, and obviously guy who played Kid ended up being a stand-up comic as well, and Robin Harris was in it as well, um, and then in Living Color, which was a sketch show, which kind of created like, gave the platform for the Wayans Brothers and Jim Carrey, um, and, and then yeah, and then seeing like. Ellen DeGeneres in her sitcom and Margaret Cho in her sitcom and Brett Butler in her sitcom and Roseanne Barr. So, yeah, it's a big, it gave a massive influence in terms of me beginning to form a comedic voice or an interest in comedy. And it, and it sounds as well like it's not just forming a comedic voice and an interest in comedy. It's, it kind of sounds like a master plan. Yeah, basically. I, I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no idea how to pursue it. And I guess as a child, you see... The, the image you're given of Hollywood is that, you know, you, you kind of, or entertainment in general is that it's quite exalted and you just feel like, I guess, the alumni that are involved in entertainment and how that's curated is just, was just so separate a world from me. So 
you know, I mean, I knew people went to stage school and went to like dance school or places like Italia Conti and the Brits, but in terms of the uh, the career path to end up in Hollywood, I had no idea what that was, and it, I didn't come from a background where that would be encouraged. And being a second generation immigrant, like your career path is either legal, clerical, or medical, or maybe in the service industry or quaternary industry and working in an office or a high powered job in a city. So working in in creative arts was just wasn't ever part of the plan and also for myself I guess I had kind of rationalized that by as well as being like you know the last thing you want to be is another stereotype where you feel your only opportunities for professional I guess or self-actualization is just going to be either in sports or drugs or entertainment okay because that normally seemed to be the career path for a black man to have any social mobility in that, you know, you rarely, if at all, see any representation politically or socioeconomically. So for most role models, it's normally within sports or drugs or entertainment. Or the, so, so, so you felt a pressure not to go into sports or drugs or entertainment? I yeah. mean, let's take drugs out of it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. In terms of like a career but, yeah, plan. Yeah, exactly, my career plan, but I mean, yeah. Even though you wanted to be in entertainment, yeah. you felt... a. Uh, you put a pressure on yourself to maybe not, just not do just that. Just to defy the stereotype and not be like everyone else who just wants to sing and tap dance your way into success. And just, okay. And so, because it just seems so cliche, that was, seems to be everyone else's dream. And I was like, well, we can't not, we can't all rap. And, and, and I guess I felt, especially when I would focus on uh, pundits from the creative or sports industries, and this is like maybe early 90s, where I mean, hooliganism at the time was kind of at its height and there was repeated instances of like racism in Europe and in the UK and this is when kind of laws became a lot tighter on hooliganism like late 80s, early 90s and following like the Cook Report and expose programmes like that and uh, I always felt that uh, in the UK I felt everyone was quite stum about it in terms of confronting like uh, race issues and I remember I was in primary school when Stephen Lawrence was killed and that's like 50 minutes from where I live and for me it was like no one seemed very vocal about it, whereas in the States, you know, the early 90s when Chris Rock was doing, like, you know, big-ass jokes and you had, like, Public Enemy and Spike Lee just made, like, Malcolm X. So there seemed to be an enormous resurgence in uh, black self-determination in the States, while everyone in the UK wasn't so saying anything. And it was like, oh, we just play our football and that'll do the talk. And I was like, well, that this wasn't really good enough for me. So I get, there was just no real role models to project onto in the UK. And, you know, I didn't really see any mutuality between myself and a Frank Bruno, per se, so... Sure. Frank Bruno is a kind of, like, yeah. the only Who, role Yeah, model. well, he was... I mean, and he was quite a significant one. It's like Frank Frank Bruno, like, Mr. Motivator, and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not bad people at all, but so far as, like, being uh, focal points for social commentary or discussing the Black British experience, I wasn't really getting it from these personalities, so I ended up gravitating towards the States a lot more, other than having my own home and upbringing as a reference point. Yeah. So do you, I would imagine for someone like you, who, as you, as you said, you're all, you're already conscious of not wanting to fulfill a stereotype of going entertainment. Yeah. Is there a a parallel to that whereby part of you is thinking, do I want to become a, a voice for the black British experience or do I want to leave and go to America? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. presumably, I, I would imagine that's a tension uh, for you. Yeah, it's, between... it's a tension, yeah. But I, I think, I guess, it'll, um, the other reason as well, I thought, because I have a twin, and her sights were set on television and the creative industry. And so, and I, 
uh, the paradigm of our relationship is not is like we couldn't be too more opposite in terms of our outlook on the world and in terms of where I may make commentary about you know how I feel about reality TV as a subgenre of entertainment. My sister can sit down and watch a whole day of Keeping Up with the Kardashians okay. and think nothing of it. So just that's just to give you an idea of the the difference in our. I mean, our, it's, our I'm trying not to visualise her as your sister from Sunny D. Because <laughs> I know no, that is close. not the. No, it's so close. <laughs> okay, so okay. close. Yeah. So close. Yeah, it's, 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 exactly. It's almost it's almost method. So because so my sister wanted to be on TV, so it was even more reason for me to be like, well, if she wants to be on TV, that just reinforces why I don't want to be on television. Okay. So, and I, and to me, I just felt my sister was deluded. And there's like a really clear example of this was that we always watch Saved by the Bell. And there's an episode of Saved by the Bell where Kelly Kapowski's dad is working for the, uh, he's, I think he's working for the government. And then world peace breaks up in this in in this world. And so he gets made redundant, so she yeah. can't go to the prom. Yeah. And it's real sad because she's crying. He's like, I can't go because my dad hasn't got a job. And the world peace. And I just remember thinking, you fucking selfish piece of shit. I'd happily never leave my house to go for any recreational activity again for world peace. And I just thought, this is the lesson one... And this lends to, like, you know, just, I guess, the disposition of most middle Americans that apparently that's more... The prom is more important than peace on this planet. And, you know, my sister wouldn't see anything like that, so I was just like, well... How does that, how does that paradigm relate to the idea of the stand-up being able to change the world? Well, just for the start, just having honesty, I guess, and just being able to discuss issues in the world. And for me, I think, yeah, I guess the machinations began because I was just like, say this is supposed to be a sitcom which Americans watch and they consume this idea that everything is okay... And, and, and just because yeah. I, I remember Saved by the Bell, but I, I don't remember that specific episode, is she held up to be ridiculous for having that view? Or no. Is that, I see what you no. mean. That, so that's they're that's like, presented they're as like, the they're like, they're like, oh, let's do, we could do whatever it takes to bring Kelly to the prom, and it's such a sad day. And I'm just thinking, number one, okay. you spend four years in high school, and number two, it's peace on the planet. Your dad can find another job. And just that idea, and maybe, and yeah, so for me it was just like, the idea, of the, just the idea of this utopia that America was promoting, while then juxtaposing that with the commentary I was getting from music, which was relevant at the same time, just kind of began to just become a lot more disillusioned with, I guess, the kind of bubblegum offering that was supposed to be for my age group. So I was kind of okay. began to just move this way, and yeah, I just found myself a lot more isolated from my peers anyway. So yeah, so that's and, so and now that's kind of precipitating that. Yeah, I do. It's the pressure of achieving as much as I can in the UK. But even for myself, I just, I see, uh, in terms of being a voice, I I don't even consider myself just limited to the UK because I'm aware of America's, or even African-Americans' perception of black Europeans that are really aware of us anyway. So it's not something that I would, that's not a uh, title or, I guess, a responsibility that I'm going to, like, ignore in order to be successful in the States. And also speaking to peers, I had a conversation with Jimmy Carr, who used to do tour support for Louis C.K., which I guess we'll discuss a bit later on. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he was just like, you know, just given this, the, the landscape of the U.S. is so vast, this is why it takes up to the decade plus for some of the more prolific acts to kind of crack that or, you know, be successful on the road. So, you know, I'm kind of realistic in that I feel maybe some coastal cities or major cities will be more interested in what I'm doing, or maybe I'd be a festival act in the States, but... For me, it's just making sure just the narrative would work over there and maybe just guarding a cult following. So I'm realistic in that respect. But um, So what is the narrative? When you say the narrative would work over there, well, what do just, you think of as the I narrative? mean, just, uh, I guess, it's discussing the black experience from a perspective other than the African-American one. Um, 
and just just I guess a few maybe uh, more uh, novel concepts in terms of how race relations differ in uh, Europe and continent or continental Europe and the UK and uh, probably classes probably not discussed as much um, and also maybe discussing agnosticism as opposed to atheism or because I think there's more of a zeitgeist of fundamentalist atheism in Europe as opposed to agnosticism so I'm somebody who uh, maybe tries to have a narrative which doesn't have to be contextualised along like by parties and political lines or Abraham religious lines, but just really just trying to get to consciousness, more exchange, a stream of consciousness or an exchange rather than trying to contextualise what I have to say along these lines all the time. Okay. So I, I feel like, and this is going to sound pretentious, we got there. So I'm really trying to move towards making third eye observations. Okay. As a comment. By which you mean? By making commentary in terms of like, uh, you know, dealing with race relations or gender politics, but really, I think most people in the quantum of their own solace, when you are uh, reflecting on your existence, usually you did it the most when you wake up and when you go to sleep. And when you wake up and as soon as you open your eyes, you don't go open your eyes and think, I'm a man or I'm a black man or I'm a white woman. Most people, it's just their consciousness. And, and then you begin to have to perceive the world along these lines of how you are, in terms of how you are, you're, you're perceived by your society. But for the most part, when people are thinking along by themselves, or when you dream, you know, you don't really dream in terms of your race or your religion or your gender. You just interpret things as consciousness. So you're aiming for observations that are relatable to everybody because they're relatable through the prism of consciousness itself. Yeah. And it's by, you know, people being able to observe the uh, strongest quantum of their individuality, then that's how we all are able to be a collective. Gotcha. So, so which is which is kind of when you say it's a third eye observation, is that kind of is, does that herald uh, hark back to that the Bill Hicks idea of like squeegeeing your third eye? Yes. In terms of like you know, which exactly, he talks yeah. about a lot in terms of, terms of drugs experiences. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And you know, and Bill Hicks has probably been well. And I think I probably learned more about Bill Hicks. Like I'd see clips, but I got more into him as you know because I think with most comics and open mic level. There's like this various schools which people kind of follow, whether it's Bill Hicks or it's uh, uh, Stuart Lee. I found a lot of the time people kind of follow that school. Or in some cases, I think when I started comedy with the explosion of like panel and comedy having that resurgence, like, yeah, or mid part of the noughties was kind of like Michael McIntyre. And they were all kind of just, and people just had these, they kind of broke into these groups in terms of their comic sensibility. But for what, me. What kind, what kind of groups would you identify? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it'd be like, I guess, be more middle class liberals. It'd be more kind of Stuart Lee, or, or and I know a lot of people kind of the idea that Stuart Lee kind of persevered with his uh, his comic style. He struggled for a long time, and most people referred me to his autobiography, which I didn't get a chance to read yet. But I have met him. Great. <laughs> it's a really good so, book. Yeah, rather, rather it's a really good book. And I am interested in the narrative of Stuart Lee and in how, like, oh, he struggled for a long time. And you watch videos of his very early stand up and you're like, you're absolutely not struggling. You're doing really well. Brilliant yeah, yeah. And also, when I was in secondary school, and my friends would always tell me about like Fist of Fun and stuff. So, yeah. So, I, yeah, I got into So, I feel like having a TV show that early at a time when having a television show meant something is doing pretty well. But, so you should. Good guy. Great comic. But, uh, yeah, so a lot of people kind of McIntyre-esque as well. But I feel like for, for most open micers, I think Bill Hicks, in terms of like just, yeah, just the drink and the rambling. So the, the aesthetic as well. 
Yes. Yeah. And and also, I suppose the idea that it's like you said those th- those third eye observations. He's talking about stuff that has deep meaning to everyone, as yeah. opposed to observational stuff like you know McIntyre's obviously brilliant observations. Yeah. The man draw the scotch tape. You know all those yeah. all those things about the minutiae of life. Mm-hmm. He's not saying he's not saying anything about life itself. Similarly, Stuart Lee is talking a lot about kind of. Um, cultural ideas and socio-political ideas yeah. and what's going on in the room, but he's not necessarily... I don't even know what it is. The third eye is a really good way of looking at it because it's not quite that it's spiritual, it's just that that idea Cerebral of... Cerebral rather than spiritual. In terms of like... Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's cerebral, so there's, there's almost like a, a quasi-scientific aspect to it because, I guess, as an atheist, so he explains it from, you know, how, I guess, chemical reactions manifest as human urges. And, okay. and 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 I guess the other way I look at it, because I studied business at university, which is obviously a social science, and you talk about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I guess with most human beings, their initial needs are those physiological ones, and then a need for association as you progress, and then finally self-actualization in terms of you being able to identify how your humanity is reflected against humanity, because we're a social species. And if you look at those comics... Each one kind of deals with those tears anyway. So Michael McIntyre makes deals with like more physiological and you know the five senses, and then the need for association through ideology or through culture. That's what Stuart Lee discusses. And then when you transcend that and the self-actualization, that's what Bill Hicks kind of I guess that's his narrative as well. So for me, I kind of took from all of those schools because as you're progressing as an artist or as an, or you're trying to endeavor in expression you're going to transcend these things as well. So I guess I took from all of those schools and I feel like my Bill Hicks probably something I probably was gravitate towards more than the aforementioned because I have I probably give him more grace as an American. And I feel, I think it's, he had a line, I think it says that all human beings are, uh, it's like, uh, we're all part of a collective consciousness. Oh, experience experiencing of, itself. Yeah, yeah. experiencing itself. Yeah, and for me, it's like, well, then of course you have the right to die because you've got it. How that as an observation of humanity, you're never going to outdo that. You've, oh, you mean he, Bill, has the right to die? Oh hell yeah, because he, he nailed it. Yeah, he, he was me, finished. Yeah, you finished yeah. it. When you, once, once you've got there, you, you're never going to beat that. That observation just transcends everything. However, that's translated and stuff. That's the most accurate or succinct way of describing humanity. So for me, it's like you don't need to do anything else because you got there, that, and, that's, and that's the that's the pedestal I put him on in that respect. And you know, there's an argument that you know he used to preach a lot and he wasn't that funny. But then, really, if you think about like the apex point of what comedy is, it's essentially this is a it's one part of the dichotomy of uh, comedy and tragedy in terms of dramatic performance. But then you know, it's also kind of. It's social commentary, but so far as like if we're talking about observational comedy, that's the keenest one that that encompasses humanity and perception itself. So, what more do you need to do? And for me, it's like you know, when you, once you find a the formula, then you retire from the world. What, what you don't need to waste any more time. And anyone who's aspiring to be a true artist, that's you should really admire that. I feel. I'm just uh, because obviously this is an audio medium. The the listener is going to have to uh, just uh, you're going to have to visualize the enormous grin that's been breaking out over my face yeah. in the last five minutes because like the that is a fascinating observation that is a fascinating parallel to draw between 
is it Arthur Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. Is that right? Now, yeah. I'm familiar with the idea, I suppose, but I couldn't have named the guy. And taking that and applying it to uh, an idea of stand-up comedy in different levels, I'm enjoying this enormously. Yes, <laughs> as and, I and, know and, you and, at home and, are. Exactly. And, but it's also the intersect as well, because another way of looking at it, if someone is of a more spiritual disposition, then you have, like, when we look at, like, uh, the chakras, the seven chakras, it's very similar in that your uh, lizard brain in the lower sh- red chakra deals with more, your more carnal needs. And at the top, where you have, you know, violet chakra, your crown chakra, it's right there by your third eye. Sure. So, you know, both equally applicable, but it's all everyone trying really, and that's, I imagine that's the goal of art anyway, is to articulate your experience as a human being and take whatever concepts we're not able to communicate necessarily that well with our five senses and make them into a tangible way that, that you can interpret it that way. So once you get to that point where you begin to transcend senses, then that really should be the goal of any art form, I feel. So this is Dane. What a joy to talk to him. I mean, you can see, you can probably hear my, in the beginning of this interview, you can hear me go from sitting on an armchair to sitting cross-legged on an armchair in a kind of a, <gasps> here we go, lean forward kind of way. What a fascinating bloke and a very, very funny comic as well. I do recommend you get to see G.O.D. on tour uh, and follow all the stuff that he's up to. He's got some really good sets uh, online and you can see some of those things that we're talking about in this interview about when you get the right concept for a comedy bit, like a big bit, and then everything else just falls into place. He's got some really good examples of that online. So I highly recommend that if you're interested at all in uh, British stand-up comedy, you get your head... Brit, and indeed dual nationality stand-up comedy, um, that you get stuck in to, uh, to Dane Baptiste's work online. Now, I was going to mention this, Comedia Bath. You'll know, uh, those of you in London will know the Comedia in Brighton. You may not know there's also one in Bath, uh, and they are undergoing a community ownership campaign. So I'm going to read you some blurb here. Rather than you listen to me try and blag my way through my hazy understanding of it, I'm just going to read this because because this isn't a paid ad. This is just me trying to support something which I think is great. So, Comedia Bath's community ownership campaign has been notching up the support of the comedy industry. With a string of comics already invested in the crowdfunding project, which comes to a close next week, many more have taken to social media. We always take to it to support the Bath-based video. Um, There is a campaign that you can see at the Kickstarter. It's crowdfunder... Well, I guess it's not technically a Kickstarter. Sorry, it's a crowdfunder. I should have just stuck to reading it. If you go to crowdfunder.co.uk, Comedia Bath, that's Comedia, K-O-M-E-I-D-A, Bath, uh, then you can find out all about it, including uh, watching a video from Mel, from Mel and Sue, uh, explaining how it's been the launch pad for lots of artists. They're trying to raise... 350 grand to secure the long-term theatre of this brilliant venue that I've played at loads of times. Almost anyone that has any British-based act that has been on this show will have played the Comedia Bath and had a great fun time there. Um, in, and it, they are currently close to the 250,000 mark. There's only a week to go, so do check that out. The award-winning venue has been at the heart of entertainment in Bath in the Southwest, and is currently campaigning to convert to a community benefit society. And that's really interesting, because that means it's sort of owned by the people who have invested in it, rather than by some shadowy mogul. So uh, I highly recommend you go to crowdfunder.co.uk forward slash Comedia Bath. Now, that's all of that stuff. I will tell you all about the the T-shirt debacle. Basically, I'll tell you about that at the end of this episode. 36 T-shirts got sent to the wrong... Got sent. 
I sent 36 T-shirts to the wrong people, the wrong sizes for the wrong people, and lo and behold, some of you were nice enough to not even mention it when you got sent something that was five sizes too big or too small for you. And I'll tell you all about how we cleared that up uh, at the end of this episode. Couple of other things to mention, of course. Tickets currently available for my stand-up tour, Like I Mean It, which was, I think, in the top 20 best-reviewed shows at Edinburgh, which is meaningless to me, but by God, I'm mentioning it a lot. Uh, you can come along and see that show at a variety of places all over Britain and Ireland, and you can get all of your details for that from comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. I'm for- I forgot to do my new regular shout-out at the beginning of this episode, but if you're enjoying it and you'd like to hear more, go to comedianscomedian.com. You can find all sorts of other information about the show, uh, a link to join the Facebook group so that you can chat to us. And, hey, James Acaster is coming back to the show in a week, so there's a huge thread on the Facebook uh, ComCom pod group uh, for questions for James Acaster, and I do like to pick through those. I will try and ask and credit some of those when I talk to James. Um, so get stuck into that. And yes, comedianscomedian.com will tell you all about all the different things you can uh, learn about the podcast, such as the top 10 episodes as voted for by you, the listener, and so on and so forth. Thank you for everyone who's been supporting the podcast this week. Thank you to Peter, Chris, Ray, Neetes, Corin, Daniel and Ian for your various types of support. Uh, and we will talk more about the, the support of the incredible T-shirt community later. Um, but uh, but those people were a combination of one-off donations and setting up small recurring donations, all of which you can do at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. And that is all I need to tell you for now. I will chat to you after the conclusion of this episode with Dane Baptiste. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now, who is this guy who is a business degree student who is thinking in terms of chakras? Well, I think that's, that's come, in terms of doing research into like spirituality chakra, it came more recently. But then at the same time, it was more just an exercise to just confirm suspicions I began to have about the life I was trying to live. So the business student and the kind of the uh, kind of aspirations to work in an office was all a part of me, the denial and being a closet creative Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So it's like it's in the same way, like you know, the most you know, you have it's like the, it's like the Republican senator who gets exposed in a gay scandal while being homophobic the whole sure, time. Sure. Okay. The same thing is that I, you know, just wanted to be creative, but created so many walls against it. Okay. So this is going to be episode something like two hundred and thirty or forty, and I've I don't really feel like I've had this conversation with anyone before. Mm-hmm. So. You are you aware that the level at which you're talking and analysing comedy and spirituality and all of these things is not usual? Yeah, but it's, but it's the thing is like, but I've said it, but in comedy it's like we're making observations and when I began to study comedy, the idea was about reviving, revive, you 
emulate the art of conversation. That's the idea of you being on stage. So, but with it, and with the conversation, that's what happens is that conversations begin with like maybe uh, icebreakers and you will make jokes as you begin to endear yourself to somebody and just in a, you know, in just one regular discourse when you're speaking to one person. But as you proceed and, you know, and I guess how you begin to develop a bond or kinmanship when you're having a discussion with someone is that you can talk about stuff and it doesn't have to, have to be punctuated by a laugh or a groan, but it's just, oh, no, I see what you mean. Oh, I, I get you. Yeah. And that's, and for me, it's like that just, it's just a more succinct comedy is just performing that really the goal of you being an orator and trying to communicate with other human beings is that at the end of that exchange that people are like oh I get I get you and, and absolutely so, so, absolutely so for me it's like I, I guess I, I didn't maybe try to overthink comedy but for me it's like I just don't try to get bogged down in the whole rigid aspect of I say stuff and it's funny and I'm of this uh, ideological disposition and that's how I feel politically because as I said, if you are really, it's an art form and I believe the idea of most art is for you to try and either capture that, this particular incarnation of humanity at this time and, and, and represent that or, you know, or communicate, communicate a part of your humanity which isn't tangible through normal methods and that comes from, that's an esoteric thing that doesn't come from which religion you're brought up in or which race you're told to be in. And so, I, yeah, I, I just feel that... Um, the goal of any real performance artist is to speak to people in a way that transcends all of the way that you normally have to contextualize yourself in in in, uh, in society. So. I think what I, I I agree with you. I think um, I think what I'm getting at is that you already. I'm wondering: is Dane the smartest and most articulate person I've ever had on the show? Do you know what I mean? You you seem phenomenally educated. You're very. You have an incredible ease with language, whereby you are. Uh, you know, you're articulating big bit. What are we? We're like you know, 15, 20 minutes in, yeah. and it's massive. Have you always been someone who talks in this kind of way about these kind of things? Because I want to get on yeah. to the, so, the comedy of it. Yeah, but yeah. I'm also just interested in the means by which you make your point. Sometimes, I probably, I probably, again, it's probably more so, and that's only because I just feel more comfortable in who I am to be like that. Whereas I think in other kind of maybe social academic situations, I may have even done myself down or had to kind of like gag myself and how I felt about, you know, just dis- dis- having discussions with people. So that's probably, I feel more comfortable in who I am and, you know, I enjoy what I do. So that's how, that's how I express myself. And it's not really a question of me trying to profess intelligence, but this is presuming, <laughs> I, I, ev- presuming everyone's the same. Cause, cause, and, and that's because that's going to always be the minefield if you are discussing or you're using extensive uh, Lexis, then people will think, oh, you're trying to be smart. And that's never the issue. And like, even, even I've learned. So for example, like I talk to my dad quite a lot. Now my dad's background is that, you know, he came to the UK in the 60s. My dad worked in Dagenham at Ford plant and, you know, and he's been a mechanic and dad's a postman now. But I can tell you easily that he runs rings around me intellectually easily and, you know, and made these sacrifices all work so that I would have access to like a, a, I guess, superior standard of education that he was privy to. But at the same time, my dad will run rings around me, you know, intellectually. And that comes from the fact that, and it's Greg, Dick Gregory, like Dick Gregory said that, is that, Intelligence is a, is a false state of consciousness. That's the uh, compartmentalization of knowledge. So, how so? Intelligence is a very stupid thing to define, especially because, and it, like if Malcolm X says, most everyone gets their primary education from their mother. So, depending on how your mother brings you up, because your first lessons are like how learning learned behaviors like crying means you can alert people that you require. Uh, some form of gratification, whether it's like food or warmth or, you know, so, and then 
So that's a learned behavior. You learn how to nurse from your mother, how to clean yourself. You begin to, you know, her speech patterns because that's the person you're hearing. So in terms of you interpreting sound and sight and scent, that's normally because your interaction with your mother. So also you, that's why if you don't have, you know, a bond with your mother when you're born, you die because you aren't able to experience humanity. So again, it doesn't change because if you're not touched when you're a baby, you'll die. So that repeats it sort of holographically as you get older anyway, that if you can't imprint on your species, then how can you interpret yourself? So for me, it's just um, it's just trying to take... I'm just working as hard as possible to take these complex ideas and make them as simple as possible just for people to understand. So it's just... For me, it's just... I've, I've seen it, I guess. So I, I've seen it. And st- by studying comedy, that I've kind of seen it. And it's not that I'm trying to prove that I'm intelligent or anything like that. It's just that we all know this. I'm not, I'm not professing anything new to people. We all know this. It's just that you've had so much distraction and so much kind of social engineering that people forget what are basically esoteric truths. So it's not, uh, for me, it's not necessarily a question of like, I try and be smart or use extensive language because it's to prove I'm intelligent, but it's more like you have a tongue and like you have one life and you know, we're working in an oratory medium. Why would you limit yourself? Like, why would you not use words to create the art as well in the, in the pictures? So is is stand-up comedy the best use of your intellect? Because I feel like, to put this through a paradigm that I'm more yeah. comfortable with, I feel like I'm talking to Tony Stark. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I'm talking well, to a kind of billionaire polymath. Uh, uh, no, you, if yeah. only because you're probably the only person I've spoken to in conversation that has used the word profess correctly. And I'm going, <laughs> fucking hell, OK. <laughs> so, so you... What is it about comedy that is comedy the end point for you, or is it like a lot of the things you've talked about something else that you could move through? We've already talked a lot about this idea of what's beyond that. What's the point? Of, like yeah. we said, the point at which Bill Hicks. Effectively, we're talking about transcendence. Yeah, it was philosophy. That's really when you think about it. It's just it's just a uh, comedy. It's just it's just philosophy. It's it's masquerading as like a a popular art form or something funny, but really comedy is philosophy. You're using, an, you're an orator and you're making observations about, and you're talking about our existence. When we're making observations, you're like, well, you know, and I, when really then we're just pondering our existence. It's just the depth at which we do it. So really, I guess for me, I feel like, you know, the next stage is, I guess, in the same way that, you know, in hip hop, you start off as a DJ and then you become a producer because that's what you're going to do. Once you become aware of a phenomenon, once you end up kind of, retroactively mining and trying to learn more about it you know yeah. in the same way that you hear a good song and there's a sample then you'll go back and look at where the sample's from you learn about that artist what their influence was and yeah and you and you will always try and begin to do research and i think that's that's a big thing about humanity is that you know it's a large part of our actions it's, it's reflection and obviously it means somewhere we're aware of the cyclical nature of our existence as well that patterns tend to repeat themselves so for me, I comedy kind of initially works because I can say what I want to say, wherever I want to say it, however I want to say it, and you know potentially it could be a springboard into something else. But yeah, I think, and I've maybe seen it from some of the people I admire, is that you get to a point where when you're talking, you don't necessarily need to have people laugh at what you say because they just completely understand it. Yes, and I think I think that's that's the uh, that's the real zenith point of being a good. Orator. Yes, that's what, and, and that's what you are, really. Is, and I, I think a, a, an audience member or a critic or fellow comic can look at acts like that and go, "Well, there haven't been any punchlines in a while." Yeah, and that's like a really reductive way to look at it because yeah. actually, every. I mean, I think t- to be honest, he's been on the show recently, Reginald D. Hunter. Mm-hmm. 
whatever else you want to say about Reg, he can talk for a long time with yeah. people hanging on his every word, and that I don't think that's just charisma. And you know, I know it, 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 it can't be yeah. thing with him where he's just like, oh, he's like a preacher. He's like, it's, it's not just that; it's yeah. because he's talking about huge. It's inter- and it's interesting you say preacher as well because obviously he has a very deep voice, uh, which is of low frequency and high vibration. And that can have an effect on people sonically as well, because uh, like historically, a lot of music has like a bass line, and because it mimics like the heartbeat. And the more like your actions and your cadence can mimic, like you know, that's almost like the free, like low frequency is the like vibration is like that's how your cells kind of vibrate. And they even say stuff like if you stub your toe and you go, oh, like that, that low vibration. You're comforting yourself. You're comforting yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Magic. And it, and, it's, and it dates back to like as earliest examples of Homo sapien. And also not only that, because you recognize that sound, that vibration, it begins to stimulate like activation of your immune system and begins your repairs. So, so were you, let's just very quickly go back to you at school. You went to a good school. You come from a... You uh, know, so it's a prim- regular primary school. Then I went to, I went to a grammar school. So Okay. Um, I don't even... I'm not even quite sure what a grammar so school is. So grammar school, is. I guess it's just a hybrid between private school and, and you know, and public okay. school in that, you know, you do pay a very more nominal fee and you have... Your, I guess your semester will be different outside of the normal uh, public school curriculum. Okay. Um, but it just means that you have admissions from people from this varied backgrounds kind of thing. Sure, sure. So, okay. So, yeah. So, and, so it's just... Uh, Almost having a, it's almost being a private school surrounded by public schools kind of thing. Okay, and did you did you talk like this? By which I mean I don't mean specifically the vocabulary, but the the excitement about ideas. Did you talk like this at school? Did you have friends who were kind of having high level chats about how the world a few, works? Yeah, a few friends, a few friends, but um, it was just the extent to which people were willing to uh, entertain other ideas. Because some friends would be enlightened, but then some friends are still uh, subject to a, uh, you know, a, have coming from a Judeo-Christian background, or you know, or their their thinking may be bound within, you know, have maybe placed cultural limits on how they think. And uh, I guess I kind of spoke the way I always did, and there were just uh, some teachers that picked up on it. Sure. So, okay. so, so, at any point when I was in school, or because I, I was also a class clown as well, so it wasn't always it was a stream. Of How were you a class clown as well as this? Do you, well, do you see what I mean? Because, like, because, you... because the thing is, it's like probably from boredom. Where if you're trying yeah, to study a curriculum, okay. then just do something else to distract yourself. And and also, I guess once you and if you have an enlightenment or you feel enlightened about certain aspects of society, you don't make any sense. Then you know you just see it as a joke, and you just it's just very hard for me to take certain things seriously. And so that's just that would just be my reaction. And also, my parents are very while they my parents are very progressive. They encourage as much education as possible. It's still from a, a cultural background where it's like children are seen and not heard. Yeah. So how I'd have to conduct myself in my house was very different to when I was outside my house and at school. And but then at the same time, I definitely revered my parents because that's how you know culturally we're taught to do and respect your parents. So I would struggle with authoritarians who would try and justify their rank just by the fact that they have a title. Yeah. So for me, the worst thing you could have said to me when I was an adolescent was because I said so. Yes, okay. Because yeah. as far as I was concerned, well, but you don't pay to take care of me. My parents look after me. They're, they're taxpayers. They never miss a day of work. Mm-hmm. You don't even have those credentials as a person. So <laughs> why should I listen? I don't need to listen to you because you said so. I don't so know what age I'm imagining you saying this at, but Probably, I imagine like a seven-year-old yeah, thing going, you 11, don't have credentials. Yeah, exactly. Or even, even 11. I remember even I remember being, when I was 11, I had a teacher called Miss Taylor 
and she was my sister's teacher. So already my respect for her. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what she brings home like academically. So I, I'm already in doubts about you. But I, I, so I go into her class to use uh, like the rotor trim, like those guillotines when kids used to mount their pictures on like yes. sugar paper and stuff. So I'm talking to some of my friends in the class and she's just like, and this, this point, I think it's like the day before the last day of school before we're leaving primary school. And she's like, you know, Dane, you're not that funny. No one laughs with you when you do your little jokes. Everyone's laughing at you. And you're not going to go very far in life, which I imagine is supposed to be a point of trauma for a child. But I remember laughing in her face and being like, if you are this incensed by an 11 year old, then I, you, I, you should be more worried about your 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 job and your level of professionalism. I, it was never. It wasn't even like, and a teacher broke my heart. It was just like, I'm a, I'm an 11 year old child. I'm going. I'm leaving tomorrow. Like you don't even have to invest yourself this emotionally in anybody in this job because no child is going. You have at best nine months with every child in this class. So why are you so attached to this job? I just thought, oh, like at your age, I'm 11 years old. How much impact can I have on your life? And I just thought, well. You just ruined it for teachers anyway. And just showing you, this is very petulant. And I just thought, oh, that's sad for an adult. As a side note, you've got to write that sitcom. Yeah. I, want an, I want the articulate 11-year-old Dane sitcom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not changed. I mean, I need to, I, and that's the thing, comedy has just been about returning to having to be the same person, not trying to suppress this person. And I, and I feel, you know, and that's a, it's a Freudian concept that your formative years are from zero to seven and how you kind of rationalise oh, and deal yes. with situations you carry you throughout life. And I just felt I was, I was the same. So I remember that story vividly, even as an 11-year-old, and I was like over 20 years ago. And I was just like, I was like, oh, come on now, drama queen. I just, I just, did, I just felt like, really, lady, like, you're not, are you going to remember me in 10 years? What difference does it make? I'm not going to sit there and be like, I can't believe... I'm not going to be traumatised by this in 11 years. And even then, I was kind of like, that probably reinforces the why I should be doing anyway. <laughs> do, I, you, do you think, looking back at that experience, do you think she was trying to score a final point because she felt she couldn't control you or have authority over you? Or yeah. do you think she was trying to motivate you to dick around less? I know, in, in her case, like, it's the former. She okay. gets, she, it's, it's her, and and, and, I, and I, that's the reaction Just I get from of, Yeah, exactly. And, I, and, that's, and that's the reaction I get from people is that there are people who feel I have an Icarus complex and so they feel they have to they, they feel they have to take me down a peg and then there are people who are kind of like if you really apply this you can be great but sure. if you in schooling yeah in schooling yeah is that reflected in comedy um yeah I think it's, it still repeats yeah again cyclical repeats today there are some people that realize where I want to go and what I intend to do with the art form and how I may innovate on it and then there are some critics who are like, well, he deals with too many topics and um, and he has this idea that he's uh, a messiah and it's these people that have just built all these defences in their head where it's like, well, Dane just looks like somebody that bullied me in school, so I'm going to make sure people know he's not so great. Okay, so, yeah. okay. Well, let's use, the, let's use this to get into your work. So let's look at something... Uh, a bit I saw of yours on YouTube that was, I think was from Sydney earlier this year or was released this year. Um, yeah, Sydney Festival 2017. Yeah. The, you're talking about transgender issues. Yes. And you begin with some pretty dumb jokes about tomatoes and vegetables and stuff. Yeah. And then it, and I was sort of thinking, okay, I, I felt like maybe those, and I'm, I will refer glibly to the bit because people yeah. couldn't go away and look it up. Um, and I was thinking, okay, is that is that like you 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 had one of those kind of lines where you're like, now don't go saying that's yeah. insensitive to trans people because blah you know blah blah blah. And I was like, I don't know if that joke really does yeah. fix the issue that has been raised there. 
And then it turned into a, a phenomenal bit, the salted caramel bit. Yeah. When you're looking at um, the 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 apparent, you know, this it, it's it's relevant because it's about salted caramel, which yeah. is suddenly a big thing, and it's relevant because it's about trans issues to a certain extent, and it's about one, you know, about uh, salt wanting to be a sweet yeah. spice rather than a savoury one, and that bit blew me away, right? Because that's such a good bit. Yeah. So, tell thank, me. Thank you, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> anyway, that's a, thank yeah. you, thank you very much. Yes, it is. Thank you. you are correct. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, tell me before we get into uh, other aspects of your work. Let's just look at that bit and how that bit came about. Because, I mean, do you feel you must feel a certain amount of pride in, like, yeah, that bit says yeah. what I wanted to say. Well, yeah, it's, it's, the, the pride really is that it's, it's just in terms of the writing process. There are some jokes I have which may take years to kind of tweak and return to and then you're lucky if you have like your eureka moment and then just like I said before I wake up or go to sleep then I'm just hit with the idea and then that's how it just comes and so for me it was just uh you know I guess it's it's always trying to look at the absurdity of hatred or the, the absurdity of uh of kind of you know of division and uh that always means my writing's never limited in terms of how far I can take that and how surreal it can go and the process really is that it's just aware, I'm aware that it's an issue that can be very polarising. So I just begin to have the delivery system of stupidity, just yes. so that the audience, because I know what normally happens is that people are waiting to hit trigger words, and then they begin to shut off, and then they begin to divide the room. So it begins as surreal and as stupid and almost cartoonish as possible, Yeah. because then they're relaxed. And then... I can be a lot more cutting in terms of using the analogy and dealing with this issue because normally if you if you try to discuss something like that using the jargon that is normally pertinent to that subject and trans and transphobia and binary people are like well it has nothing to do with me or well I want to see what he how he feels about us so by trying to just staying away from the jargon and using these just very surreal examples that people don't even see them as being uh, you know an analogy to you know, dealing with a rather complex issue now. And um, that's just a method I use, really, because at the end of it, then people have seen people, like, you know, in a McIntyre way, would look at, you know, that that's most mcintyre that, you know, what spices you have in the cupboard. And, what, sure. and you know, and, all, and almost like a Pixar animation, what's happening in the spice cupboard when you're not there kind of thing, which is a very easy way for people to digest their concept. Um, and then I suppose it's... Uh, and I've I kind of added to the joke since then, whereas my, a bit I'd have about Stuart Lee would be the idea that it's like, well, I accept that people, you know, feel that is people feel that the gender reassignment is ungodly, but if someone's having an operation, which means they get paid twenty percent less for the same job, that's a self sacrifice that any angel would be envious of. And then I said, and then finally for me, it's that you know, like we the salt thing can be read on two levels and very few people will see it but it's remember it's, uh, girls are made from sugar and spice and everything mm-hmm. nice so from salt wanting to be like sugar is like wanting to be a girl that's the uh, other level that people might pick up on or, or not and is, uh, that, and is that a deli- was that a written level or was that a happy coincidence whereas it's kind of it's, it's, a, it's a written level but it's, it's because I guess it's because I've never been musically inclined but admire like used to admire rappers that can put like double entendres or have this meaning in, in sure, their right. Okay. So so yeah, so it's just so it's kinda of, so really just the whole process is that it's it's nice to find it, but it's 
I, it works for me and I try to create in that way because I know people read it on more than one level and there are some people who aren't necessarily that ignorant but people become very afraid when you deal with, they have to deal with certain jargon or they have to contextualise their perspective along these, when they have to contextualise their perspective along these, uh, I guess, socio-political lines. So I try and stay away from them and just, just present a complex topic in a way, in a, in a way that, in the most broad way that anyone can understand it. And when people finish laughing at the stupid idea of an argument between curry powder and salt, then it just makes the concept a lot more, a lot easier for them to digest. Yes. And it's just, I guess it's, and it's always, and I guess that comes back from the same way that, you know, in every Star Trek episode, when they had to repair a part of the ship or be some complex form of quantum mechanics, then they'd be like, well, it's just like a balloon, you blow it up until it bursts. And they just make yeah, it as easy as possible. Sure, so, sure, sure. so yeah, so it just makes it a lot more palatable. So, and and also, yeah, and and really for me, it's, it's and in a way, it's kind of me maybe inviting rebuttal from maybe people who are affected from that community as well, from the trans community. Because in a way, I kind of want to know what they think anyway, because I guess it's me trying to perceive it as well and also make it as true as possible because I don't think I understand the entire... I might not understand the entire issue anyway. So it, it kind of invites conversation and it also leaves room for the joke to evolve as well and for me to learn. And also, which it should do, like I said, in every artistic performance, demonstrate that maybe I am not enlightened, and I am flawed as a human being. And I'm a comedian, so I'm just sometimes a stupid goofball as well. And so that's just trying to come across in that very that small bit. So with regard to your your currently touring show, G.O.D., mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Gold Oil Drugs, yeah. um, of which I heard a preview, but uh, I admit I haven't seen, I haven't seen the finished thing. Mm-hmm. I suppose... In listening to that show, I suppose there must be a challenge for you in that show is positioned as a big G.O.D., gold yeah. oil drugs. This is and it, and it is your third show yeah. and it's kind of it's out of the gate like you did very well. We'll talk about the nomination a bit later, but you did like a real strong opening show that made everyone go, holy shit. And then a, a follow-up show that made everyone go, whoa, it's not a difficult second show. It's really great. So a lot of pressure on the third one then. Yeah. And you seem to have kind of uh, stepped up even further to go, this is a big statement. This is in terms of like a rap album. Yeah. This is like, this is my, this is me dropping yeah. how I see the whole world. I see the whole world, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Now, do you think that there is a danger in promising a big hot take on the whole world that then if you there's a there's a danger that you have to live up to a big hot take on the whole world. I'm trying to choose my words carefully yeah, yeah. because no, I, I don't want to feel uh, like I'm being critical of the show. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't quite what I expected it to be. Yeah. I mean it was yeah the challenge was really just trying to condense as much potentially material as possible in an hour. And that was became a difficult part is that there was so much more that I could and wanted to say. Okay. That that just fit in an hour. Um but then, you know, I just see the entire project is not just limited to that one hour show. So it really is just... When you tour it, is it an hour on tour? Or is it an interval? Is it a longer show um, it'd be, on tour? It would probably be a longer show on tour. But then but then it could be parks. I, I might record it and then maybe just do an hour on gold and an hour on oil and an hour on drugs. So okay. I, I just don't, I don't necessarily feel limited by it, you know. Because um, I thought you were... Yeah. What, you, what you do really well is you do take on really big uh, yeah. topics. Is that is that the show that's got the deadbeat dad money... Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So that that metaphor is like money is like a deadbeat dad in your life. Yeah. yeah. That is a really well explored thing. It's one of those kind of sit up in bed at night, kind of like, oh yeah, the yeah. planets have aligned kind of moments. 
I wondered whether when you got onto uh, drugs, and there's a moment when you shifted in that preview, at least from mm. like drugs, because love is a drug. And I thought, yeah. is this really about drugs? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like, is, is that you? I felt as a fellow comic, I felt I could see you, the writer, making a decision there that I didn't know whether that lived up to. Oh, yeah, the yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely, I was definitely uh, stuck for time. By the time I got to drugs, but, <laughs> uh, to be honest, yeah. But then I just, yeah, it was just. Um, I think it's like with every, I, I tried to look at the shows as albums, and albums just captured where you may be at the time. Sure. And just and so, it's yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot more I, I probably want to say. So it just means like you know I may have to use this uh, media other than comedy in order to communicate that. But um, yeah, I, I just it's just one of these things where you know I. I have a lot more to say, but it's just the beginning of the journey, anyway. So, with all, with all the with all of my shows, they're all they're all concepts. So, I, I'm not that rigid to it, like in terms of the fact that I feel that there's more I could have done with God, but there's no reason why I can't go back to it. So, yeah, I, I mean, just simply for I'm just like, yeah, got to take it too seriously. I enjoyed doing it, and there it is, and people digest it however they want, and yeah, and and I felt the same as that, you know. I said love is a drug and that was the beginning to kind of maybe progress into another trade of thought. But, you know, as I continue to go down the room, it's like probably maybe another 20 minutes I can get out of this, but there may be another half an hour or another show that yeah. I can get out of this. Yeah, that is so, interesting in the in the writing of a show where you go, oh, this topic is so big that maybe I should not do any of it and save it for next year. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or write it down. Or, uh, so it's just like, you know, how there's so many other ways I can maybe represent this concept. So, like, why be limited here? And it's just... And this is something I've noticed... Like, I guess that was one of the... For me, that was one of the things I embraced most about Edinburgh, is that it's one of the only places where you can definitely begin to kind of defy the uh, more conventional concepts of putting together a comedy show and putting together an hour of comedy. Um, and probably since doing this show, and after, you know, maybe seven years in comedy, I'm kind of like, I don't want to be limited anymore by just doing a show in an hour. Maybe there's a strong 45 minutes on a topic that I can do or a strong half an hour. And I don't want to be restricted by just, you know, the rigid structure of having a story arc anymore. So in a way, I, I, I and probably in some ways was unfortunate in that I had an hour to address some very broad issues, but really now it just means I realise there's so much more I can do again. And like I said, it answers the question, is comedy the end point for you that maybe no, maybe I have to write a book to do something as vast as, you know, discussing spirituality and materialism then, you may need to write a book for that or have a have a podcast for that or be a, appear on a podcast to explain that concept. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of useful in that respect. It does strike me with Edinburgh that Edin, Edin, the Edinburgh Festival in the, for comics in the UK seems to be for an industry in which the whole point is you don't need to do it the way everyone else does it. Yeah. The fact that we all go to one place every year, not all of us, yeah. but the, probably most of us who are intending to do more than yeah. the clubs. Um, the fact that we all go into the same place and do the same, I don't mean the same structure, but just the same duration. The yeah. fact that everyone is doing 50 to an hour. It, it, that's the worst, and that's the worst part of Edinburgh for me. Like, the hardest thing about Edinburgh for me is doing the same thing every day. Like, I, I can't handle it. As I, I enjoy being in a creative hub and seeing my peers and learning more and being able to get through maybe a month of new material in a week or even a day if I do enough gigs. But for me, the most restricting part of Edinburgh is doing the same show every day. 
Because why? Because you're. It's not enough to keep you engaged. Yeah, it's not enough. It's 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 the show. I mean, if I'm talking. About, if I'm discussing like God, that's got to evolve on a daily basis, or you know, that's got to, that's going to evolve every single day. That so, what would fix that problem if your show? What if you said like just on a completely blue sky kind of way? Yeah. If you said, "Come and see Dane's new show. It's between thirty and ninety minutes long, depending yeah. on how I'm feeling." Do you yeah. know what I mean? You, you yeah. could do some yeah. of that. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, you could do that. Yeah, you could do that, yeah. And I, I would, yeah, 90 minutes, half an hour on gold, half an hour on oil, half an hour on drugs. And, and, then, and, but, and you could say the duration of the show is flexible. Yeah, and then, you know and, then, and, then, and then, you know, for the first week of Edinburgh, it's volume one, and it's those half an hour, and second week's volume two. Because and, all of us can make those decisions and go, yeah. this is, and you think probably only really, well, that's one of the reasons why Kitson is so respected is because he kind of, you know, won the big stand-up award and yeah. then went back the next year with a story. Exactly. That's, so, and it's, it's, it's a, that's a massively admirable uh, kind of uh, process that Daniel Kitson does. It's just, it, and, and then, again, another example of somebody who ha, is, the, is, you know, considered a comedian's comedian and has transcended being able to put together the, the debut hour and the strong follow-up hour and has the accolades to show it. So now, it's not just enough of doing stand-up. He plays with several different concepts because he's proven that making a room laugh with a unique and original comedy is something you can do. So now it's pushing it to, yeah, you know, just realising comedy in so many other methods. So I think God's probably going to be the uh, springboard for me to begin to do that. And okay. So, and when so, it comes to... You mentioned the accolades. Do they mean anything to you? Uh, and... Uh, because I think I think, I think, I think yeah, everyone sometimes. would want to go. No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> I, I think I think acknowledgement means more than accolades. I'd say I, I think because you know I've had nominations and I've had accolades and you know I speak to friends or peers and you know, some people haven't haven't heard, haven't heard of them and yeah. and their perception of of me has not you know increased or reduced based on what I've received. So, and also, as I remember, and there's an episode of South Park where they, when they created the, the, the joke robot and they were saying, you know, if we get upset about not getting awards, then we begin to take this too seriously. Mm-hmm. So it's always a way I try and kind of catch myself and, uh, and again, and just become, re- re- return to just a state of mind where I didn't start comedy for, for me to have five stars in Chortle. I didn't start comedy so that even a standard could recommend my show I started comedy because I felt I wanted to do something I felt I was good at and something I was passionate about and would be able to lend to what I considered to be positive attributes of my person and I could reflect that best part of me in and express my express the better part of me or the better part of my humanity in this form so that's why I started doing comedy so while sometimes I do maybe get maybe feel offended or I may feel that I've um that I've been done done over by not having accolades. Really, it's ego. Even with negative criticism, I am aware it's my ego that's bruised and damaged. It's it's not that I. It's not this person changing my perception of myself. I am more worried about how people will perceive me based on this on this uh, on this review. And once I able to, and after you get over it, and you rationalize it. Then it's just like you can't keep taking this stuff too seriously. It's like, you can't have, you can't, I can't entertain concepts in my head of transcending, like, form and opening the third eye and then be worried about, like, a publication that no one cares about in November. Let's talk then about the tension between the transcendent or the kind of proto-transcendent part of you, the cerebral part of you, the 
the educated part of you, the, the business degree part of you, and the kind of profane part of you, or the, yeah. or the more negative, the more vulnerable to criticism, yeah. the bit, presumably there, I mean, is there a bit of you that doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because I think we've been talking very big, yeah, highfalutin yeah. terms, which, are, which exactly, are, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely, uh, I think are completely appropriate. But let's, like, I, I think a lot of people listening to this will be like, I wish I could be more like that. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the flaws in your your humanity, your take on it all. Yeah. You know, what, what are some of the things that you find the hardest? Um, like I said, sometimes just getting out of bed. It's, 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 uh, it's very, I would be very, I think, especially now, I've seen it's more the prevalence of people having discussion of uh, mental issues and depression, especially with men discussing mental issues. It's, that, it's a real refreshing time to be around and have, see people have the discussion as well because uh, I think I'm only even able to entertain such high-brow concepts by being aware of my flaws as a human and and how I many sometimes I think you wake up and think, oh, you're just an, you're an idiot or you're such a loser, you're such a goofball. And it just, and it makes, yeah, it's accepting that part of my being as well that makes those ideas a lot easier. And again, I guess it's, Knowing you have an ego and knowing when its appearance is best suited and when it's needed and when it's not needed. Um, how do you cling on to that? How do you, like, I mean, how do you deal with, for example, bog standard, how do you deal with a bad gig? Um, I, just, I just, for me, it's like, you know, in comedy seven years, it's even out over the spread. And, and also, why was it bad? So it's, uh, I feel like for most comics, your biggest fear when you begin comedy is will people laugh? And are they going to laugh? What's going to happen if they don't say anything? But I've had enough time now and experience to try and enjoy more of the stillness sometimes as well and really not just go out there and just turn this into a dramatic performance when I just do my set of five to 20 minutes. Like, make this an experience for you as well because otherwise you're... Because then you can live edit on stage and you're actually learning actively while you're performing and, and that's definitely something I endeavour to do where before I would have a set list and I'd write my set list down or have it in my phone... Whereas now I'm more inclined to go on stage and be like, let's just see what happens and try stuff. And, and you can learn while doing it at the same time and gain that experience. Because some jokes, when, so for example, a bad gig, which I've had, it's now not that that was just a bad gig. Why was that a bad gig? What about the environment wasn't bad? Or what about the audience that was bad? Because sometimes I can have a bad gig, but gen, based on the, you know, the, 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 the ideological disposition of that audience or how, what their beliefs are, I might want to have a bad gig in front of these people. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Maybe you're yeah. maybe you're pricks and you don't like me. And, yeah. <laughs> and really, if you did, then I'd really have to ask some questions about myself and my yeah. material. If you guys enjoyed it, then maybe I need to think about what I'm saying. So it just depends how you define a bad gig nowadays. For me, a bad gig now can just be like, not because I can have a gig and have 20 minutes and have people laugh solidly for 20 minutes. But if I fail to communicate some ideas and maybe enlighten these people somewhat, or change their perceptions about something they may be rather ignorant about, then maybe you've not really done your your work as an artist, and maybe you've mailed, maybe you've mailed it in, and okay. So and and may and maybe you know, and then maybe even in this potentially uh, positive situation, I have allowed my ego to kind of prevail and chased more the gratification than I have ch- chased, you know, a good performance. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, uh... I hate to use the word paradigm again, but it is. Yeah. That's a great paradigm Because you, you, you can mail it in and do well, but, you know, you come away. And it's like, I've, I've been recently just doing a bit like, with like stripping, like, you know, you can bear your soul or you can, 
but then and you can still feel empty inside or they can act like they love you but you know that they only love you because of what you know for a very superficial very shallow reason and so you, sometimes for me it's kind of like like for example in terms of like maybe in race relations and if i'm discussing race on stage then it's not enough for because I've I've seen shows where people might perform and they may cite kind of racial tropes, whether it's referring to the size of your dick or and the crowd might love it, or you're referring to what may be perceived as kind of stereotypes for a, the quintessential black act, mm-hmm. and that might go very well. The problem is that once you've done that for a particular audience, and they feel well, we've indulged this uh, performance, this novel performance by this black act. So I feel, I mean, I can definitely not be in a position where I can, can be considered racist. I just watch a black guy on stage for ten minutes, but really that exchange has not really helped anything because you may have validated this person's kind of preconceptions anyway rather than challenging them. And I think sometimes that's a bit more important. It doesn't necessarily you're gonna it's gonna work and you may not get the same response and you may make people uncomfortable. But you know, I feel like if you really wanna distinguish yourself and that's that, so speaking to the ego of the aspiring artist comedian, if you want to distinguish yourself and your ego's if you want to be one of the best, then you just recycling Tropes is not really going to work. And then I guess artistically and speaking to the soul, it's like, you know, you're not really trying to change the world. And if every individual was trying to do that, then, you know, you may have opened up one person's eye in that audience and by holographic principle, they can pass that on and be like, well, I, if they're in the situation again where they're hearing someone recycle a stereotype or reinforce a racist idea, that person may have, you could have sowed the seed in that person may be like, well, actually, I beg to differ because I saw someone on stage who said, actually, this is the situation. And you can change perception that way. So, and I, for me, that's the, that's, I feel that that's the artistic and almost human obligation. If you consider yourself a good person or you're aspiring to be a good person, then that's your opportunity to help try and change the world. Because it's very rare that most people can hold, have a room in this, this day and age that you have a whole room where everyone's listening to what you have to say. And that can be massively impactful. So you should never kind of, you know, take that for granted. Yeah. So, for me, like, how do you define a bad gig? A bad gig is really can not necessarily mean that they're not laughing. It could be, it could be they could be laughing their heads off, but really not listening to the stuff you really want to say or really want to get across. Or, or as you said before, you're chasing the ego massage. You're yeah. doing a bit that you know works, but maybe isn't very smart. Yeah, or, exactly. You know, yeah. Stuff, exactly. You know. It's lowbrow. You're appealing to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, and, you, and you're, you're still that. receiving a lot of positive. It's still a sexual, yeah, yeah, it's still exciting a, still, experience. See, yeah. and see, and then... then then yeah, because then now then it's the the endorphins or the dopamine release, and then there's the drug, and that's why fame is a drug. Because then and then so then and this is the stuff I got missed out on talking about in God this time round because then there's no, there is a release of drugs or chemicals into your bloodstream which gives you gratification. So how long before you begin to chase that a lot chase that feeling alone of validation from an audience and that external uh, validation the gratification that comes with that, and then you begin to not even focus on the pathology of how you arrive at that gratification where you perform well and people yeah. appreciate it and you get your uh you know you get your plaudits. But then if you're just chasing that release, then you're just addicted to the fame now. So what's there's no telling what you're gonna do in order for you to continue to chase that high. And one minute you're on stage and next minute you're eating an ostrich's dick in the jungle. And you may not have a plan when you come out, but you're chasing this fame thing and it becomes a lot more blurred. So, yeah. I def- mean, because you specifically mentioned the jungle, yeah. and we know of two comics from the UK, certainly, yeah. who have been through that. Um, 
are you referring explicitly to Joel Domit or? Oh, not just not Shepard? just not just comics. We're not, we're not really referring to okay, comics because I, I okay. mean, luckily, those are two examples of people that are both accomplished comedians. So that really raised their profile. And me, that for me, that's more of an, an industrial act where you know, Joel, for example, had been doing he's been in comedy for like you know maybe just shy of a decade, done maybe two or three shows our shows, and just industrially in a position whereby you know if he was a musician. He'd be accomplished three albums in yeah. and be a successful musician, but just we just don't give comedy the same esteem as we do music. So he's maybe just used he's used the jungle, raised his profile, but it's not like he's going to come out and he has to get like a team of writers now to uh, no, right, put together exactly. a brand. He's you in know, a position where you're in a position where you, maybe six hours, yeah, for six yeah, hours, yeah. Sure, and, you, sure. and for me, I feel like he's more than earned that. You know, and we'd be the same situation okay. with Shappy as well. But it's more to do with the fact that it's a. Uh, for me, it's this—it's the whole emergence of reality TV, and it's almost like now there's a. It's—it's uh, it's now it's just people just are more ready to sacrifice uh, the fame over having talent and actually caring about art. And sure, because they're chasing the dopamine. Because they're chasing the dopamine. So, so listen, I—I I discovered in researching you, and I hadn't clocked this at the time. You were the first black British person. I can't bring myself to use the word Britain. It's just it's weird. <laughs> you know, that's what it says in all the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the first black Britain. It's yeah. like, oh, I didn't even realise I was a Britain. <laughs> a Brit one, yeah, yeah. You were the first uh, black British comic to get nominated for Newcomer yeah. at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival yeah. in all the various guises of that thing. Now, I suppose that was, like, my first reaction to that was, wow, that's going to be a calling card yeah. for a long time. Must have opened some doors. I suppose then I thought, yeah, it'll be a calling card until someone becomes the first black Britain to be nominated to nominate for Best Show or yeah, to yeah. win Best Show. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, there's perhaps a shelf life. But then I was thinking, Jesus, really? Yeah. The first in how many yeah, yeah. years in, of that competition? Yeah. Talk to me about over, that. Over 20 years. I, well, we didn't, we didn't know until a few days afterwards the Guardian had picked up on it and I had no idea. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely embrace it, and uh, I'm, I, it's, it's, I feel very privileged to have made that achievement. But yeah, massively surprised, and presumably like surprised, not really in a good way. I mean, does that yeah, show yeah. up the, no, the no, awards, no, no. or does it show up the state of like what does that reveal? You, you, um, in your yeah, for me, I, it, it reveals. I mean, and I, I probably became more aware of this after the nomination. It reveals that there is a massive disconnect between the diaspora. The, or the creative diaspora and Edinburgh and com- mainstream comedy as a whole, um, and I, I think yeah, it just it just definitely showed that there maybe wasn't enough of us being recognised or going to Edinburgh. And for me, it was just like I'm aware that there are other Black British comics that have been to Edinburgh before I was, I have, and they they're accomplished in their fields. But why I just felt weird that people are going to the biggest arts festival in the world and no one's even getting a look in. So. And yeah, why do I mean, you think it was you that got a look in? What was distinct about you that that effectively, I suppose, what it, down, what it boils down to is that pleased the judges? Because that yeah. presumably is an aspect of the the discourse on this as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I really couldn't tell you. I my personal feeling is that it was support from other comedians that put me in that position. Um, I I mean I wasn't you know, aware of the other standard of other comics that were there or if there were other Black British comics doing their debuts at the same time, but I feel really the uh, attention for the debut show came from solidarity from other comedians, and I probably owe it to the 
comedian community more than anything else. And not that I, I'm grateful to the panel, but my interaction with them was minimal. But the buzz that was generated for the debut show came from other comics and from, yeah, real diverse uh, places, just making people wear the show and recommending it. And Band and Gag took me up there and Nigel was like, make sure you preview your ass off everywhere. And I previewed the show in, like, Latvia and I previewed it in Estonia just to make sure I had the broadest appeal possible. Um, but, yeah, I just feel it was just really... I just it was I, I feel like it was more to do with the fact that a lot of comics could see what I was doing and I was basically trying to bridge the gap between my origins on the black circuit and, you know... I know that I never made a distinction when I do play the circuits. I never made a distinction between them. My material wouldn't change, but obviously you have two different communities that are aware of what I'm doing and were just equally supportive, and that's and that's how it kind of culminated in the nomination. So, yeah, in that respect, it was kind of like as a uh, as a village to raise a child. So, yeah, it was a, it was a collaborative effort. So, yeah, in the, I mean, that's a that's a very deft answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the lineage of you as a black British stand-up who talks about the sorts of things that you talk about, I feel like there's a there's a more visible uh, lineage in American comedy than there is in British comedy. Yeah. Like, who, who do you feel kind of went before you as a black British stand-up who was actually talking about, like, approaching those kind of third-eye topics? Well, very few, to be honest. I, I think there was very few. I mean, there's definitely been, there was uh, black British stand-ups, but, you know, in the case of Lenny Henry, he was primarily an impressionist. And Richard Blackwood was a presenter who was also incidentally funny and an actor. So it was very hard to find that like, the pure, just black British stand-up. I mean, I could, we could probably name them on yeah. the fingers of two hands. There were Curtis Walker, Stephen Kay, Moss. Yep, and Jeannie Asheray. Jeannie Asheray, of uh, course. And, then, and, then, and for me, like my biggest, the, I guess when I saw the most of the uh, black British comics, I saw, again, would have been a sketch comic, so they would have been in the real McCoy. Yes, so then, I mean, that was a whole so thing. So, so Kirsch would yeah. perform with like Eddie Nesta and uh, and uh, Leah Muhammad and Felix, Felix Dexter, Dexter, oh, Felix as well, yeah, yeah. So, Felix as well, yeah. So, for me, that was the I guess that's the lineage that I kind of followed. And none, not really any of those. Felix had been, Felix had been political, yeah, yeah. I mean, political, I mean, but I think at the time, just because the uh, just having a black voice was obscured for so long, just just hearing a black voice. Was enough for people. That yeah, was a political act in itself. So just having the voice alone and someone articulating the experience of being a uh, first or second generation Afro Caribbean was like I said that was that was that was the the revolutionary act in itself. So for me, I guess when I began to really start thinking about my comedic voice, it was just about honing. It was mainly just yeah having to evolve on that because there was I felt there was definitely a uh, disconnect between the preceding generation and my one. And I think the reason why is because the uh, comedy elders really just saw us recycling, you know, the same style. Or they felt that, for the most part, we were recycling the same style, but, you know, Dancehall was replaced with Garage or yeah. uh, or like Rare Groove was replaced with, like, Slow Jam. And so you just, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So you, so you just, yeah. So you just cross out, yeah, so you just crossing out and filling in for the, for the contemporary references without actually innovating on what had been done before. And then it was only until, uh, you know, at, like, Rudy Liquid and, and Slim and Felix Dexter saw what I was doing and knew I wanted to do something different. And they were aware and they became, and they were just very supportive and stuff. So, um, so, yeah, so I guess... For me, it was just like, yeah, who who is doing this? And who, there's there's not there's, it's very hard for this. There's no precedent. So, 
I guess it was for myself and my peers and, you know, and the Prince Abdis and the Fumbis and the Ollas to kind of just represent the changes that we wanted to see anyway. And, you know, it was hard because I guess our point of reference would again have been like Americans, but it was just um, trying to hone a voice with a British sensibility rather than trying to kind of replicate what they were doing anyway. And I was and I was always aware I couldn't do that. And, and so for me, it was I always had to consider that enormous influence and that legacy of African-American comics in that if I'm going to discuss race relations, it's got to be relevant to a British and by that uh, proxy, a European audience, because the experience is very different. I have to be aware of that. And also, and even whether or not it's different, if I'm going to do race material, but it's got to be very good or very different because it's been done to a to the highest standard by your priors and then your rocks and your and your chapels. So definitely have to do something new. So it was just um it was yeah, so it was just a great um, massive influence to basically really try and change the landscape of comedy anyway. And and for me and and that's where, that's where the ego comes in for me is that it's uh it's the is it extras when um I think it's oh, I want to say Keith Chegwin is talking about comedians mm-hmm. and who's a good black comedian in the UK. I don't know the bit. And I think on. Ricky Gervais can't think of an example. Okay. And they're trying to think, oh, who's... Because he's making... He made, he's playing... He's like a parody of himself being quite racist and talking about, like, black British comedians. And they're like, oh... And then um, Ricky Gervais said, there's amazing black comics. What are you talking about? They're all amazing. And he's like, well, can you name a black British one? And Ricky Gervais is like, hmm. And I was like, I will make sure you would never say that again. That's that. From here on out, whatever happens, there will be no stereotype or trope, or reference to banal black British comedians that can be made when I'm finished doing what I'm doing. Even if it's one show, or two shows, or three shows, like, from here on out, if the conversation about comedy comes up, then people will be like, well, Dane does, but Dane does this. It won't be like, but this lowbrow comedy, did not be able to say that, or someone can only play to one audience. So, for me, it's definitely the... Uh, about smashing any pre-existing kind of... So were you offended by that? Oh, by that yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously he was tending to do that, but and it wasn't, it wasn't really offence that he, I think he said it as to, as a barb to, to the black British comedy community, but it was more like, it's sad that uh, that's, that's the so fact. That's, that, that, that could that, work that, as yeah, a joke. That's a work, yeah, it's sad yeah. that could work as a joke, and I was like, that, that's, not, that can't, that's not good enough. I've, I've seen amazingly gifted comedians. I've grown up on them, and for some reason they, they've been whitewashed out of the lineage of British comedy as a whole. And, you know, not a call taken away from Sir Lenny Henry's achievements, but to have one icon over the span of over two decades, it's not good enough. When when the whole consensus is, is that there is a very advanced comedy scene in the UK, but we're not included. Now, it's the largest arts festival in the world. How can we not be on there? When you look at the Americans and the, like, the lineage of black comics and where they sit in terms of how revered they are in the art form, that this is that's just not good enough. So, do you think that you getting that nomination was the very beginning of a kind of a, a, an intelligentsia or like the intellectual, you know, the Guardian reading yeah, yeah. British comedy going public, recognizing that a thing was happening? Was, and then if so, was that them recognising too late or was it appropriate that they recognised it at that time because of the strata that you've identified of you and Ola yeah. and, and Prince? I think, I think it's, it was never on schedule, always on time is, is the phrase. So, probably, I, I mean, for all of us, again, ego, we would like for it to have happened sooner. 
but it happened and then I well, guess not it just happened. ego for fucking righteous anger yeah, right, yeah right there, the righteous anger as well yeah yeah and just being pissed off about the, the, the state of, of, of the industry but uh, I mean it happened when it did and um, for me it's it's just more of a question of now doing it proved it could be done and it, and, it, and it, I guess it began it happened just before just preceding the uh, whispers of diversity becoming an issue in the industry anyway so I guess they, they kind of worked uh, together so yeah yeah, the duality of those two events taking place could only bode well for us anyway. So, yeah, I, I, I was pissed off about it. But like I said, again, I didn't just start doing comedy because I wanted to be recognised as the black act, this and that. It's just a, it was just to be a good example. And, yeah, and, and I guess, you know, that's, again, that's just a big part of, of your journey as an artist is that you can inspire and influence change in your art form. So if it contributes, and I think if it contributes to making people think, you can go to Edinburgh and do well, then that's the big, that's the best part of it, really. And it, and it means that it contributes to the art form as a whole anyway, because then now it means that, you know, the patrons of Edinburgh will see acts they wouldn't have seen before, which they'll love and, they, and they'll, they'll enjoy. And it, and it kind of... Uh, and it's more, yeah, it's about bridging the gap. And these are very talented acts now who see Edinburgh as a viable uh, medium for them to realise some of their creative aspirations as well. So I guess, I guess it was just the, the, the linking of the two worlds was the most important part. It, this, this might be a misstep on my part, but I feel like as our conversation today has progressed and possibly it's to do with the territory that we're talking about, I feel like right now you are using fewer long and intellectual words yeah. than you were an hour ago at the mm-hmm. start of this conversation. And I'm, I suppose what I'm asking is like, I I suppose I have an instinct that maybe at the beginning of a conversation, it's like a verbal calling card for you to express your intelligence in a way that now actually we've warmed up a bit and you don't feel you need to do that. It might, it might just be my ego. Or, or, or it might be just because because yeah. everything you said before, I was completely on board with yeah. it and everything. But do you feel like your your it might be it might yeah it might, maybe it's changed, changed. Or, or relaxed or it might be my ego. But I think it's important just to play with all of the rhythm. So I, I kind of change it. So or it might be me just tempering uh, my answers because sometimes I I am conscious that I get worried that I ramble. So it's just a complex that I have that if I continue too much and I do use too extensive vocabulary that I begin to ramble and detract from the point. So it's just making sure I'm communicating as much information as possible. Because communicating is so important. Because so that's important, the, yeah, yeah. the important thing is, yeah. is the communication, not the appearance of yeah. intelligence. And also it's like Moore's Law, if people hear something of this at the same pitch and at the same rhythm for a long time, yeah. it begins to like fade fade back and, yeah. not be, and not be in the forefront of their mind. So it's important to just alter the rhythm in how you speak because sure. you need your holding. So it's just working on the cadence when you're just working on just using your you know your mouth as your only tool so i feel like that question might have been offensive for me no no no, 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 because it's it's something you may have noticed and it might be that i'm more comfortable or it might be just a reflection of nerves so it it might be just i'm maybe more nervous and i use bigger words to get my point across or just be just be my just how my mind changes or how, how i'm seeing it so um i guess i just i just like to play with language all the time and just do whatever and 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 also I think maybe in this particular situation then like we are referring to like the intelligence intelligentsia of like you know your ollas and 
probably I, I want to be able to discuss it but not kind of dominate the entire narrative because I know they're articulate enough to maybe discuss yes. their experience as well. Oh, fuck so, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, it's so, coming more, on the more show. Than, yeah, yeah, so, gonna... so, 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 he's going to burn the place down. He's going to burn the place down, yeah. So I know, I know there's, I don't need to tell Oz's story that much. Like, he, he's definitely someone that can do that himself as, you know, and obviously from who's been on the show as well. So, you know, they, there's enough of an extensive experience so they can discuss that. And, and also, I think more importantly, and it's good actually brought up is that it's because I probably have more of a complex of trying to assume the role of spokesperson for for my peers. Okay. So I think that's why... You I... want to make sure that you're not seen as assuming that role. Yeah. Whilst feeling that you do also want to assume that role because... Or not yeah. the spokesperson, but you do want to be a spokesperson. Yeah, I want to be a spokesperson, but yeah. not, not necessarily the dominant voice. So I missed... Uh... And that is another thing that white comics never have to fucking worry no, about. No, 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 they don't. No, they, they don't because, yeah, it's... um. So, for example, like my response a lot of time where white comics feel that, you know, male, white male comics feel they are being marginalised and there's now this resurgence of diversity is that I was reminding them, like, you know, if you break down the UK by region, you like, you have Peter Kane in the north and you have Michael McIntyre in the south and Rod Gilbert is in Wales and then you have Dara O'Brien in Ireland and then you have uh, Kevin Bridges in Scotland or Billy Colony arguably in Scotland as well. So, and then you have uh, John Bishop in uh, Lancashire as well. Uh, you have Ross Noble in the northeast. Uh, you have Russell Howard is in the southwest. Fucking you know, hell! No, Mickey <laughs> Flanagan is in the southeast. Yeah. So you know, Midlands. I get you. Frank Skinner. Yeah. Is in the Midlands as well. So there's like no region of the United Kingdom where you don't have a prominent seat. So each one of the constituents is doing fine. <laughs> so you're, 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 all, you're all doing fine. I mean, you even have you have you know yeah. you potentially you could argue you even have uh, you know Stuart Lee is. And lead liberals, and then you have yeah, he's doing crap change. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then you have, and then you also have like you know maybe you could argue you have Andrew Lawrence is more of a right wing comic, but then you know, and it's you're not suffering on panel shows. I don't, no. I don't feel, and 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 I don't necessarily to be a condemnation of like white heterosexual male comics, but it's just a just you guys. There's somebody everywhere for, yeah. for all of your sensibilities. Oh. Whereas we, I just feel that you know the uh, the narrative of black British comics, whether male or female, is still somewhat of a monolith. And we haven't really probably really enjoyed establishing that presence or even fully galvanised to establish our presence to even begin to even diversify off into like the the highbrow or conservative or liberal black comedian. Yeah, right. Still just trying to assert it's a black British. It's just the black comedian. It's still, it's still the black comedian. So, and, and again, one of those things you need to presumably be aware of is like with Ola, for example... Presumably, there is some decision to be made for him about whether he wants to be seen as the angry black comedian, because that yeah. then comes with a lot, of, you know. And it's an issue for you to be seen as the intellectual black comedian, yeah. because is that enough? Is that a rich enough difference of flavour, or is it just, you know, it could be used as a lazy stereotype? Uh, yeah, it, well, yeah, it, it can be. It can you can the fears of both of those for having both of those pitfalls, and yeah, having people be, uh, yeah, just trying. It's very. Yeah, it's a very quantitative way of kind of measuring who you are as an artist. And that's probably why I take umbrage with more, is that, you know, yeah. it's so, so, more, so much more to me as a performer than just being intelligent. And it's uh, it's not that I'm trying to tell you I'm intelligent. That might be what you perceive. That's not really the point I'm trying to get across. That's just a part of my being. And as I said, it's a kind of rebel against the suggestion of intelligence. And maybe, again, probably comes from a complex whereby I'm aware that to a lot of my peers growing up, they're paying intelligence people will switch off or they sure, or, or okay. people have their own complexes whereby 
yeah, social social engineering uh, has inculcated people this idea that if I'm intelligent, then I probably have a less of a connection with my race. Right. Okay. Because it's not yeah. something because you know the uh, image of the quintessential black comedian, and maybe even more so the black British comedian, not, we're not really associated with intelligence. So I can see that in terms of some of the uh, uh, critique I receive and. Right, and just how adverse people can be to like if you appear to be intelligent. This is why I say to people I've noticed people project their uh, Icarus complex onto me, and this idea that you're dealing with too many topics, or he feels you can discuss it. And I think sometimes it's like just because you don't get it doesn't mean yeah. that it's not it's not funny or it's not intelligent. And it's there's just... a there's a kind of an in, uh, um, what's the word? Not indoctrinated, not learned. Like there's a, an internal internalized racism yeah. necessarily. Yeah, oh, to any white critic looking at you, you, where you need to be aware of, like, what exactly? Like with any critic, yeah. any critic, a white critic uh, judging a white comic, there will definitely be a, an element of, is this person doing what I want? Is this person yeah. doing what I want to see? And when the comic is black and there's internalised racism that's yep. hereditary and all the rest of it, institutionalised, then, you know, is this... Oh, he's trying to be clever. There are so yeah, many yeah. fucking like yeah, that is an so absolute. It's, a, it's yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a mindful you have to kind of navigate around, and I and I think it's, it's definitely an issue whereby you know, um, but Nish Kumar had a, a show title which was like ruminations on the subject, of, yeah, of, yeah, 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 on yeah. the nature of subjectivity, subjectivity yeah. which just means just talking about stuff, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's a great title. <laughs> yeah, it's a great. Title. It's a really good title. He's just, he's just talking about stuff, and I think and then his next show was like blah blah blah, long word. I'm so clever, blah blah blah, because yeah. I probably, he's probably aware of the critique that followed the, 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 that title. But I think it was a great title. But yeah, I feel like in the UK, there's definitely a comfort with like an Asian comic being intelligent. And there's enough uh, other Asian and even stereotypical archetypes which lend to that idea, whether it's, you know, like I said, legal, clerical, medical. Whereas I said, because of this rigid box of sports, drugs and entertainment, where, you know, you see a most prolific, uh, you know, black individuals, when you do appear intelligent or have extensive vocabulary or deal with complex topics, then critics do become very adverse. And that's both white critics who supposedly have this esteem because they just, they profess to be critics, but then it's also like, you know, the laity and me moments sometimes we're doing with black audiences whereby the images... Because what people don't really understand is that so far as like race, self-image a lot of the time is suggested to people as opposed to them developing it themselves, especially in society. So there are a lot of black Britons who their idea of what it is to be a black person is suggested to them either culturally and uh, transgenerationally or through media. So I obviously made it a point of principle that I would challenge a lot of these ideas in my uh, material and and this is who I am as a person because like, before I started doing comedy, I didn't really see anyone being deadpan as a black comic. There wasn't really deadpan comics and... And it's, I mean, it's a phrase you seldom even hear on the black circuit. So that kind of that would kind of lend to me forming my style, and it's just so my disposition, my demeanor anyway. But it's um, it can it just, it just becomes very difficult, and that's probably why yeah I begin to start reducing the amount of vocabulary that I use because after a while, just dealing with the human condition, people either switch off or I could, I begin to see people become defensive. <laughs> yeah. Or, okay. or or they'll just try and reduce it and be like, well, here's. He, he, I mean, he thinks the shows his opus, but I, don't, I beg to differ. I'm, but yeah, but you're just you're a guy with a laptop, so. But I, I, but it's just it's a it's a part for me. 
it's a pattern that has repeated throughout my life a lot of time anyway. And it, and it normally comes from authoritarian figures or people that have devised a rank for themselves. Yeah. Is that if you are uh, professing either leadership qualities or like uh, superior, I guess, superior uh, knowledge, then, but it's outside of the, you know, uh, I guess the, uh, the paradigm of rank, then it can make people feel very threatened. And that's normally the kind of critique I come up against. So sometimes I have to kind of, like in the same way as like discussing a issue like a, a gender reassignment, I have to pretend I'm dumb and dumb it down just so I can not have too much tension on me. So it's 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 just a, it's just a method I use really. So last thing we must wrap up. I just this isn't even so much a question. It's just something I w- would be interested in your take on. With the the whole Me Too thing that's been happening on Facebook at the moment mm-hmm. and the reflections of that within the comedy industry, mm-hmm. whereby comedy, because it's such a small industry, has sort of been, you know, in the same way that, like, bang, it's happening in movies, we're all yeah. aware there's been sexual harassment in movies, and then, oh, it's happening in the theatre, but we're only really mentioning it where movie stars are involved in the theatre, yeah. and then comedy is smaller again, yeah. and then a huge movie star who was in comedy, you know, obviously Louis C.K. has been called out on this. One of the things I'm interested in is what happens next as uh, as men start to get their heads round Mm -hmm. institutionalised, internalised misogyny and start to recognise the extent to which it's a problem Mm -hmm. and hopefully start to stand up and do something about it and say something about it. I was wondering whether this is I'm sort of asking what you think I'm sort of telling you what I'm thinking I said if no, you know what I mean okay. try it that way you tell me what I, you think yeah I haven't had time to form this yeah, yeah, so, just, so maybe just say you, you think subjectively and we'll take it from there so here we go I think that will I hope that will start to happen with race yeah because there is so much it's I feel like as a white man I feel like oh fuck all of my female friends have been sexually harassed yeah and it's it's not a hop skip and a jump to think oh fuck all of my non-white friends have been racially abused or yeah. racially held back or you know there are conversations where men are needing to let themselves be uncomfortable in order to have the conversation yeah. with with women and I hope we're not that far from that developing into yeah. white people recognising that we need to have uncomfortable uncomfortable conversations. I need to be able to experience racial discomfort yeah. in order to be able to ask questions. And I just wondered whether there is the... Whether you anticipate... That's the question. Do you anticipate yeah. that Me Too and that that clearly we're living in a time where the internet is underpinning that kind of big explosion yeah, yeah. in consciousness whether you anticipate something similar happening in terms of race? Um, I think it's kind of begun to happen, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's coming up against the same uh, hurdles as the Me Too kind of, I guess, conversation is, in that I have been guilty of male privilege myself, in that my idea was that I would never be sexist towards another female comic and I would never conceptualise harassing anyone. So how could this be taking place? Because I would never do that. So no one in their right mind would abuse someone they have to work with or a colleague. So that was 
my male privilege that kind of got messed up or, or, my, or my ignorance. So yeah, just that assumption. Just, just, just yeah. an assumption that I would never visit this on a woman. And I'm I don't see it. So I don't, I don't, and I don't, I mean, I'm aware of, I, you hear, I've heard stories about it, but not directly in front of sure. me where I would sit there and not acknowledge it. So I think that's the issue there is that um, it's, even, even, I guess even using terms like making people uncomfortable, no one has to be made to feel uncomfortable. Like for me, my, if, when I hear these stories uh, of sexual harassment from uh, from women that I work with, my initial feeling is not uh, discomfort. I'm striving more for empathy, more than anything else, or, or sympathy, rather than this makes me feel uncomfortable to discuss. I'm not the person that experienced this trauma. So for me to be like, this makes me uncomfortable. How uncomfortable am I? No one sexually abused me, so I don't feel I suppose, I, Yeah, but I suppose what I'm kind of uh, focusing on is the discomfort of realising that it's been going on the whole time, that yeah. male friends of yours will have been the perpetrators of it, yeah. of ours. I don't mean yours, yeah. you know. But, but that, that kind of discomfort of, of having to talk to female friends yeah. and go, oh, part of you perhaps is thinking... I don't want to hear that such and such a comedian who I know yeah. may be guilty of this, and I have to sit with it. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I, I I understand the kind of temperament, but for me, yeah, it's I don't I I try to avoid that because I think that's just counterproductive, and it, and it probably lends to why people are more reluctant to come forward with these stories. Is that if I feel I don't want to hear, you know, because I mean, I, Louis C.K. That was a devastating blow to, to, for yeah. me and a lot of peers. Like it's like the King's dead, but. That has to, you know, in the same way that he can as fleetingly disrespect somebody, then he has to be disregarded with the same ease. Is that, you know, up until a point you would have been revered, but you've done this. So it's, you're, this is not enough. There's no, what you've achieved or what influence you've had in me is not enough to justify your actions. And yes. so that, for me, that, as far as I'm saying, that's the end of it. You have to atone and I can't indulge somebody or revere them until they seek help or acknowledge their crimes or work to repair the damage you may have done however long that takes and um i feel that it's beginning to happen with race in terms of it's it's just in a very early stage in that just people are just aware of it and we have you know the power of the internet which can give you these, these examples of it um at the same time while that is happening um the same internet I'm, you're now seeing i am now seeing a prevalence of acts who are enjoying success outside of normal kind of uh career path of going to Edinburgh and, uh, you know, seeing people like Michael Dapper, who is a character comedian who started off online, who's having enormous success and now has a song in number six or a motor comedian who is a peer of mine who uh, and a friend who's now uh, sold over 17,000 tickets for his tour in the space of like a year without having to do a debut show in Edinburgh. So um, I think, yeah, nature kind of finds a way, I suppose. And in a way that while... Some people are reticent to have the conversation about race and, and uh, issues of, uh, I guess, uh, racial trauma. What's also being made evident is that, for me, it's some of the more covert racism in terms of, like, people not feeling these acts of that of that extraction are capable of endearing themselves to a large audience. They're doing that on an enormous scale now. Yeah. So they're proving it can be done. So, yes. I mean... It's in that way. It's kind of I'm quite optimistic in that if people aren't prepared to have the conversation, then you're going to just have to watch these people surpass you instead. So, it's I think uh, the best. I think for me, I guess the best way this can proceed is that it's either you evolve or become extinct. And that and that's and there's something even for me as well because I you know in terms of race I really 
I enjoy discussing race and doing race material on stage, but I'm working towards a point whereby I'm going to come up for that audience and make these observations about racial inequity and they're not going to know what I'm talking about. That's what I'm aiming towards. I'd probably retire from comedy if that, when we agree arrive at that point. I'm happy to do that. If we get to a point where I can discuss issues of kind of racial inequity or disparity and people are like, not in this society, mate. You're just a dinosaur. I'd be like, yeah, fine, I'm done. So for me, it's, yeah, it's just a question of evolve or be extinct. And I think the conversation is beginning to happen around race and I think more people are open to discussing it. Um, but at the same time, you know, that it's just, it's what we discuss, consider discussion on race because, you know, Bill Burr, a lot of times, he discusses from the perspective of a heterosexual white man and, you know, some of the stuff he discusses can seem quite edgy or reductive or misogynistic, but I like that because it, you're reflecting what would have been transgenerational influences. So there's no... Of course you're going to think that way. But he, again, but it's someone who entertains every single avenue and demonstrates how flawed he is and contextualises his perspective by, you know, in some cases sounding very stupid and uh, but then for me it's it's looking for the and then it's the reading between the lines where he'll talk about you know his paternal relationship and how that's influenced him and how that never really had the benefit of expression and so um yeah I just think in order for the conversation to happen and for everyone to be uncomfortable but then we all have to have the conversation because I feel like part of it some some of us spending some time being like this is the problem if you're a heterosexual cisgender white man this is the problem you've got to listen this is the problem but we need to listen to the rebuttal. I mean, if it's, you know, comes across and it's white supremacist and it's nationalistic, then it's like, well, you're just a prick. But, you know, for some, there are some people who, who are just a subject to the same lack of awareness and, you know, same marginalisation, maybe socially or uh, academically, that you are if you are, you know, woman or, or, or black or, or Asian. So I think... The discomfort is a good thing, and I think it's going to be inevitable that the conversation is going to be had. And I would definitely say for any uh, heterosexual, cisgender, white man that's listening, I think it's important for you to pay attention because the world is becoming smaller, and you're living in an era of the internet, and you're living in an area. For me, to be honest, like if we discuss, even when we're discussing like nationalism, to me that's a faith system. And again, it's like, maybe I couldn't necessarily discuss it with my last show, but a country is just a landmass that the ruling class have given a name to. Yugoslavia was a country, Bavaria was a country, they're not countries now. So in an era where we are discussing the flawed logic and not even logic of, you know, uh, of theology and believing in Abrahamic religion, then we need to really start discussing Every single thing that comes from stems from a position of belief, whether it's monarchy or jingoism or nationalism, nationalism, and even capitalism, which is a system built on infinite resources, we have to just have a discussion about all of them. And so, that's, that's, I think that's um, so for me. I guess it's the conversation needs to be had, and it's good the conversation's happening. But if we're really going to have the conversation, as I said, we're going to learn that it's bigger than female and it's bigger than black we're going to arrive at that point where it's about the third eye observations. That's where the, the key to the real conversation is. Thanks, man. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
So that was Dane. What an education. He's so much fun to talk to, and I really, really recommend his stuff. Do check out his tour, if only because, as it does seem, that there is a decent possibility five years from now he'll be one of those untouchable American acts that occasionally pops over, and you can go, oh, yeah, I saw him in, for example, The Comedia Bath. So, uh, so uh, uh, I've just laughed at myself too much. But let's keep going. Let's keep recording. Don't bail out now, Stu. Um, so that is all I need to tell you for now. Comedianscomedian.com for all your information. Come and see the tour. Get on the Facebook group to give, uh, give me your questions to select, from which to select uh, individual smart, smarty pants ones uh, to ask Mr. James Acaster when he comes back on the show soon. And I will talk to you at length about the, uh, the T-shirt debacle after this sound effect of a horse. Bye for now. <laughs> So, for those of you sticking around, if you're new, this is the postamble, and I like to have a little conversation with you afterwards. Now that we've taken the pressure off, now that the interview and all of the all of the blurb and the spruiking is done, spruiking. If you're in Australia, there, I'm a big fan of uh, spruiking. Now, thank you for all of your comments about uh, Zoe Coombs Ma. If you haven't heard that one, go back and check it out. She is an absolute superhero. You uh, you're really going to enjoy her views on treating the audience as one complete unit like whenever she gigs anywhere in the world she turns up and part of her brain is thinking ah you guys again <laughs> that that alone is worth listening to the whole conversation because she the sort of brain that would come up with that is one that you want to be learning from so that's zoe do check those out now okay i've just uh, this is a combination of me uh, fessing up to a, a huge administrative error and also me wanting to celebrate the good humour and the creativity of the listeners. You. The good humour and creativity of you. So you will know that uh, the uh, T-shirts went out. The first lot of T-shirts went out before summer. And then in October, November, we were doing a little post-sale to scoop up the stragglers who didn't yet have a T-shirt. I sent them to uh, 50 people, 50 stragglers, and um, it quickly became apparent. I woke up one morning uh, hungover and tired and under pressure. And uh, in the words of Alan Cochran, there's nothing sexy about hangovers over 40. Um, so I woke up and my phone was going ping, 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 and I was like, oh, what's happened? And it turns out that a lot of the T-shirts had gone to the wrong people, Due to, and I think I've tracked it down, I was using a spreadsheet and I cunningly ordered it. Oh God, I remember congratulating myself for this. I ordered it by size of T-shirt. So it's all there based, like it's initially uh, ordered around the date by which people ordered. That's, there's no need for it to be in that order. So I thought, why don't I twiddle this and group it by sizes of T-shirt? And what happened was the column that had the sizes of T-shirt in it all lined up in a nice row. And I don't think the other information changed. <laughs> so suddenly what I had done was effectively press randomise. So some people did get the right ones, but uh, at least I had both copies of the spreadsheet. So uh, over the course of five hours, I was able, it was, yeah, it was three hours and then two hours the next day, I was able to unpick all of that, work out who needed what, and then email everyone who'd got one, who'd been sent the wrong one, and say, listen, are you up for this? This is my wife came up with this idea and she's a genius. Um, why don't we all do a lovely secret Santa swap-a-thon and everyone pass their T-shirt one to the left so everyone sends it to one person and receives it from one person. And that is currently in progress and I hope I'm not going to wake up on Monday morning and have lots of emails saying, nope, I'm still wrong because at that point I want people to move house, delete all their podcasts and burn the T-shirts. 
I just want to say that when I initially set out that that email to 36 of you uh, saying, if you're up for it, if you're okay with the idea of one stranger having your address, because I don't take that lightly, I've got a responsibility to you. If you're okay with that, then um, uh, come back to me and email me back uh, with some sort of Christmas related subject line. And I just want to read you some of them, because within 24 hours, every single one of those people got back to me. Fucking elf. Uh, The true meaning of Christmas is gaining a friend. I believe in Christmas. T-shirt Santa. Let's save Christmas. Goldsmith got run over by a reindeer, said one. Uh, I do believe in the spirit of Christmas, if not in the extended dogma. Great work, Grant. Um, Ha ha ha. I believe it could only happen to you, Stu. Thanks, mate. (laughs) Um, uh, Who said that? But I've lost that one. Uh, I believe in the concept of being nice to people. I believe Christmas can fit correctly. I believe in Christmas. Every time a T-shirt is swapped, an angel gets its wings. And then uh, my favourite, dot, 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 and now you've ruined Christmas. And I think that was uh, something that basically somebody had ordered a T-shirt for their partner and I emailed the partner to say, hey, you know that T-shirt you've ordered? And I've ruined Christmas. I'm so sorry. So listen, I hope it's working. I, I mean, it occurred to me that this me talking about it now was sort of a celebratory. God, isn't everyone nice? Wasn't it a great system? I don't know if it worked. Uh, please, please let it work. I believe in Christmas. Um, so listen, and it's given me an idea. Here's the idea, right? Um, shall I talk about the idea or shall I, shall I just launch the idea next year? I don't know. Let me talk about it. And then, uh, if it feels like I should hang on to it and keep it secret, uh, I, maybe I'll delete this bit. Here's the idea. If we can create it, if we can structure something such that all of you that want to, Submit. I'll, I can build some sort of a Google form, perhaps with the help of someone listening to this now. Uh, email me info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line skivvy, S-K-I-V-V-Y. That's for offers of help. If you are some sort of Google form spreadsheet wizard and you can think of a way to have each individual listener who is interested email their postal address to a page I can put on my, on my website, which is made, from, made in WordPress. And by emailing it in, the system can automatically chuck them back a different address of someone else that's emailed in. Is there a way of doing that where I don't have to personally look at a spreadsheet? Because if there is, then what we can do is a ComCom secret Santa where you can gift each other like DVDs. You know, everyone's got a a DVD or an old tape of a year, a tape. Um, or some sort of comedy item, some sort of memorabilia, a signed thing. Everyone can give a thing and then get a thing. And I think the best way to do this would be if we, uh, if we did it so, such that. I mean, I don't want you to. I don't want you to be bootlegging stuff. Obviously, that's illegal. But um, but if someone had like a, an old an old CD and thought oh, I've played that to death and I, I I know it backwards now, maybe someone else would like to hear the scared weird little guy CD that I got in Edinburgh in like '98. You know, um, I think that would be really fun, right? If we could keep it comedy specific, so that everyone could kind of pass a thing to the left, almost like if the if the point of it was that you choose your most obscure thing, such that it's more likely to be surprising and new rather than your Peter K DVD that you've, you know, that you've had and you played to death that people are likely to have seen. So what do you think? Could that work? Is the technology possible? Is it such a good idea? I shouldn't be telling you about it now. <laughs> I think we're going to have to try and make this work for next year. 
So maybe that'll be the little Christmas miracle that comes out of uh, the T-shirt cock-up. Maybe we come up with something fun like that. We've got a year to think about how we can make that work logistically and legally uh, in such a way that uh, I don't need to do any admin because they were five long hours. That'll do for now. Thank you for listening. Check out crowdfunder.co.uk forward slash Comedia Bath if you would like to support that uh, community benefit uh, a community ownership campaign uh, for that very excellent venue so do look into that thank you to Dane Baptiste thank you to Nathan Wood for editing this episode thank you to Daryl Smith for your long editing service and you will be sadly missed hashtag Daryl you're my hero um, Daryl Smith has moved on to past his new on account of working far too hard at far too many things uh, but he's been an excellent editor of the show uh, and I would like to formally and officially thank Daryl Smith for his excellent work cheers buddy and I would also like to welcome... I should have left more of a pause of breath there, but I'm in a hurry. I should have left a respectful breath. Thank you, buddy. And the good news is we're also welcoming, welcoming back uh, Nathan Wood, who you, who you will remember uh, edited several hundred of these shows over the years. Several hundred, at least a hundred, probably very many more. Uh, and Nathan is also just putting the finishing touches, I believe, as we speak to Compared to What, which is last year's tour album, which is going to go free to the first thousand of you who are already subscribed when I drop it at some point over Christmas. So I'm going to pop it on the feed and then whisk it away as soon as it's had a thousand downloads. So remember to subscribe if you'd like to be in with a chance of that. That will do us. Wow, that was a mountain of stuff. But, you know, I, I imagine by the time you finish listening to that Dane Baptiste conversation, your minds are going to be whirring anyway. So I'm sure you can take it all in. That's all for now. I will speak to you one more time before Christmas. Speak to you then. <laughs>